This is The Strategist, episode 808. My name is Zane Velger. With me, as always, Stephen Carter, Corey Hogan. Guys, what is going on? Nothing. Okay, okay, great, great. Nothing, nothing (laughs) at all. Fantastic. We're recording a podcast, Carter. Get on your game here. Oh, I mean, I'm really excited about recording a podcast with my good friend, Corey Hogan. You know, and, and you too, Zane. I, I hear you went mountain biking in the mountains. I did uh, go mountain biking in the mountains, and it was fun, and I'm a little tired. But you know what? It's not going to impact my intellectual performance, and uh, I'm, I'm pretty – I'm looking forward to this. I really no, do. I mean, when you've hit foundation, there's not much you can dig into, I guess. Oh, you know, Corey, some of us do physical exercise. You should try it sometime. It'll be good for you. <laughs> I just need to let you guys know the reviews are in from last. You said it's powered through your stuff. Reviews are in from last show, and everyone loved the strategy segment, uh, which, of course, means that this entire episode is one giant strategy segment. Uh, I know, good. Carter, you like that. Uh, Corey, I mean, it is, it we'll is give you extra called, time. It's a show called The Strategist, so I guess I'm okay with that. It is fun always having to pull something out of your wazoo with no knowledge, no inform- no advance notice. Just, you know, have at her, boys. Have at her, boys. Hey, See how you do. And, and also, I'm going to jump in right now before Corey forces this upon me. Uh, please review our show. Uh, this is, of course, <laughs> this is, of course, what? something. Yeah, Review it. Uh, give us five stars. I feel like, I feel like, I feel dirty, Corey. This feels horrible. Uh, and But, but I should mention. Uh, we did get a couple more reviews, and we've got a listener question, so I'll embed that in into uh, into this episode. I'm sure that will make you tremendously happy, Corey, that we this, are we are now on the streets begging for five star reviews. This is this is feeling like a very tragic comeback tour at this point. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah we'll no one on. asked for this. This is like MJ <laughs> on the Wizards, and people have and people are like, "Wait, what? You were once MJ?" And I'm like, "Let's just get past that." Okay, let's yeah. move it on to our first segment. Do not disclose. Guys, I want to talk about the new campaign finance laws here in Alberta, specifically applying to municipalities, uh, but also taking this concept of what's happening here in Alberta and expanding it about about, you know, what role money plays in modern politics. And and I think it's going to be a healthy discussion. But before we get started, just to kind of fill some folks in, Carter and and Corey, you guys may have uh, some additional items to add, but I wanted to do a quick run through of what Alberta's new legislation looks like for municipalities. And so we have uh, donation limits that have gone up. Uh, you can now donate up to $5,000 uh, per candidate with no limit of how many candidates you can donate to. Uh, that was uh, by the previous NDP government, Corey, if I'm not mistaken, was it set at 2500 amongst yep. as, uh, right as an aggregate cumulative? Yeah. Yeah, it was an aggregate cumulative of uh, 2500 uh, Now you can donate uh, to, and PACs actually now have a $500,000 limit during the, the actual election period. Prior to that, no limit. And if you're doing 375 k or less, you do not have to disclose anything uh, in terms of any of the expenditures. And then the other big one is you do not have to disclose donors prior to uh, election day. So regardless of whether you're a PAC or a candidate, there is no disclosure of who is funding you prior to election day. Carter, Corey, before we kind of move on into this, into into kind of the strategy of this, any other elements? Because this was a pretty big bill. Any other elements that stood out to you that you wanted to highlight before we, we jump into it? 
think that one big thing that jumps out to me is that the PACs don't have to report if they spend under a certain amount of money. They don't have to submit audited yeah. statements. Uh, I think the number is three fifty off the top of my head, $350,000. It's a big number. It's not little. And uh, they still have to submit reports, but they don't have to be audited. Um, so that does leave a rather significant hole, given that it takes absolutely nothing to form a pack in Alberta. It's like uh, Corey and I are forming the anti-Zane Velgi pack. Uh, we could just do it by submitting a couple of forms here and, and we'd have it. And uh, we keep it under $350,000. We don't have to submit any uh, any audited uh, statements, which I, I personally think is a pretty big hole um, to leave in the system. Um, I'm sure Corey will argue with me just just out of spite. <laughs> we'll get to that in a second, Corey. But before we do, thanks for adding that thing, Carter. What do you kind of make of the the the, the legislation in general? Uh, and and what do you kind of what are your initial thoughts when you when you read it or you saw it for the first time? Well, I think it's one of those things that is going to get a, a certain audience very keyed up, and unfortunately, not have a ton of resonance outside of of the deeply politically engaged who already have strong opinions as to who should win any given election. Where I think it's going to be challenging to to drum up opposition to any kind of legislation like this, which does make an election less transparent, which does mean an election is more likely to go to those with money rather than, you know, be broadly distributed amongst the population, is this is really just going back to what the election law was a couple of years ago. So it, it's tough to say the sky is falling, that we are in this this deep new world of social injustice. This is what status quo was two years ago. So, I, I you know, it's going to be tough to get people to care. And, and I think that's the challenge that opponents of this bill are going to find. Well, and opponents for this bill, like uh, Drew Farrell is a counselor, ran his run in municipal elections here in, in Calgary. I ran her first campaign in 2001. Heather ran her campaign in 2013. Uh, she was very much a fan of electoral uh, of election finance reform. Election finance reform was one of her core elements. Last election, she spent $195,000 to win her, her riding. Um, everybody's very much for election finance reform until you can raise more money. And then once you can raise more money, you're less inclined to be a big fan of election finance reform. Um, and, and really, realistically, this isn't one of those pieces of legislation that, that destroys our the fabric of democracy. There is one thing, and, and this is the, the thing I agree with Marinenci about, there is only one thing that's really bad, and it's really bad, and that's the listing of, don of donors' names after the election. Um, we have the technology to post a donor's name uh, within seconds of receiving the donation. This is not a complex thing. This is easy for us to do, uh, and it should be done because for those, for the very small subset of donors or of voters who care, who gave to which campaigns, it allows us to make the the, the judgment prior to actually casting the votes. Corey, what's your take on that, especially related to to not having to disclose donors prior to? To your point, this was kind of how it was in, in, in the old days. You never had two certain candidates like Mayor Nenshi. Uh, and, and, and when in 2010, when he was candidate, Nenshi always released uh, those those donors. But do you feel like it's, it's egregious and kind of against the democratic principle? Well, look, it's not just kind of how it was. It's kind of how it is at other orders of government and, and in other provinces. This is not exactly baked in as standard operating procedure within our country right now. 
That said, it does seem to me that this is a clear improvement in in the electoral process, right? Rather than having to wait until after the fact to see who has uh, who has supported a campaign, where that money is coming from, um, you, you get to see beforehand. And it's really interesting to me um, to kind of unpack why people would be opposed to that. I, I mean, ultimately, it means you're a little embarrassed of your donors. You think your donors are going to cause you some sort of reputational hit. Um, I guess if I'm being charitable, you could say that's a bit of a distraction. The campaigns don't exactly vet donors most of the time, especially if you're talking about a lot of donors. So if you have hundreds of them and and one of them has some sort of horrible past, is that really something that the campaign should be strung up for? I don't know. I mean, that's an interesting question. But uh, on the other hand, if you have a campaign that is funded by 20 developers who are essentially just trying to purchase City Hall, I think that's pretty important to know. And um, it's tough for me to see the rationale for winding that out, you know, undoing something that was put in there. I, I could maybe see not wanting to move as quickly on it, but it's, it was already the rules. So to, pulling it out to me seems strange. Carter, what's your, what's your take on this, in, especially in terms of this conversation Corey's having around why you wouldn't want this rule in place? It's projection. It's protect. It's protect. Jason Kenney and his government protecting himself from the inevitable, which will be f- campaign finance reform for his his provincial uh, legislation. They, if you, if your municipalities are forced to release their donor list, then provincial parties will be forced to release their donor list uh, prior to elections. They don't want that, and uh, so this is the first step in making sure that uh, the next provincial election is run under a set of rules that Jason Kenney has uh, has set for himself. And campaign finance, uh, you know, it's fun to talk about councillors who can raise a couple hundred grand. Uh, it's another thing to look at uh, campaigns that are two, three, four, five million dollars uh, and, and growing every time we do an election cycle. So um, I know that uh, Jason Kenney wants the ability to raise a lot of money because he needs the ability to spend a lot of money. That's that's the way he runs elections. The Conservatives last time uh, didn't worry too much about, you know, actually having the money that they spent. They ran a significant deficit. They need to dig themselves out. Fundraising legislation that uh, shields who donors are is better for donors, and donors will give them more money if they don't have to take public account. Corey? Well, I do think, to be fair, there is a philosophical view of government that is a small government view, which says that there's just not the business of government to be regulating these things so heavily and push forward. Now, that's not a view that I share, just to be really clear. But, but I, you know, I am, like Carter, a deeply cynical person. I tend to say if you're creating legislation like this, it's because you see an advantage to yourself. But, but come on. I mean, like, we can also say that there is... This is not just universally, it must be done this way. We didn't even do it this way two years ago. I, I'm, I'm a big fan of the uh, no rules. I think that, you know, money in politics isn't bad. I mean, this is how I make my money, right? Like having political parties that have the capacity to pay for political professionals is in my inherent self-interest. <laughs> um, but the, the if you're going to do that, the only piece of legislation, the only thing that is really required is public disclosure, If someone gave us a million dollars to run a campaign, I don't necessarily believe that that is corrupt. I don't think, for example, that when someone gives a a counselor $2,000, that they've bought that counselor's vote. I don't think that the world works like that. Um, I think that someone can give you a million dollars and still not have bought your allegiance. 
But the population, the public needs to know that the second the donation's made, because that is a, is a factor in the election. And then then par political parties, like you're seeing the Democrats in the United States do, are forced to self-regulate and change the way that they're treating money. Virtually every uh, Democratic contender for president didn't take money from corporations and they didn't take big money donations. They didn't run their own PACs. Now they're running PACs now, but they kept things quiet. They, 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 they changed their behavior because they knew that the voters would punish them if they didn't. It wasn't legislated. It was mandated by the voters themselves. Corey, I want to I want to talk to you about this concept that Carter just brought up. But before we do that, I, there's two things I want to hit uh, specific here before we kind of expand the conversation further. The first one is is what I'd call the S word, which is slates. We've heard about this a lot in the municipal side. Does this legislation, in your mind, introduce and perhaps uh, realize the concept of slates greater than than we've had before? Maybe. I mean, when you have municipal PACs that are able to spend so much money without regulation, it certainly creates a strong incentive to, to organize your, your funding around there. And, and there's always an economy of scale, right? If you have a PAC that is all of a sudden able to, to provide a certain amount of base communication and base infrastructure, that, that, that is essentially a party by another name. And when you think about how parties evolved and were created, it largely happened this way, right? You had groups coordinated activity. Municipal parties are not are not unique, you know, or, or rare even in this country. Certainly large cities tend to have them. Calgary and Edmonton have not, although I think it's fair to say in the past couple of election cycles, there's been a clear, this is a left-wing councillor, this is a right-wing councillor, which wasn't necessarily the case in the 90s and early 2000s. Um, so uh, it's another step down that road. Um, you'll probably not see them putting on their signs, for example, yes, I am member of candidate X, but maybe you will. Maybe this will be the thing that, that forces some organization around that front. Certainly, um, what's, what's likely to happen is, um, is you're going to see money in municipal campaigns like you never have before. One of the interesting things about this past decade of electoral reform that we've seen in Alberta, even preceding the NDP, is that every time we tighten up the rules around money, the money, it's like water. It, it flows in a different place and it creates a, a new challenge that needs to be fixed, right? And all of a sudden there's PACs. And so we create rules around PACs. And all of a sudden those rules around PACs create all of these loopholes and people are making sure that they're able to get the money ahead of time and not be defined as a PAC. And, and so at a certain point, I do wonder if we're not just fighting something that is that is kind of natural and embedded in society. And I'm not saying it's a good thing, but but maybe we are better off with disclosure than trying to regulate the amount of money to Carter. Carter, point. this has kind of been your consistent view for a while, what Corey's introducing. Uh, any comment on that? I mean, forever. I was always arguing against uh, Mayor Nenshi about his views on campaign finance reform. I always thought that we just push money into different places. And the worst place for money to go is underground. And underground money is, uh, right now it's showing up in packs, so it's not technically underground but there are lots and lots of ways to spend money that will influence an election that don't show up on anybody's balance you know on a donor list um so my view is keep it as i mean we in 2012 the donation limit to provincial parties was thirty thousand dollars thirty thousand dollars and we had no packs we had no organizations that were raising money trying to compete for or against another political party. We had the Alberta Medical Association run a $2 million campaign against us, 
uh, we beat them. <laughs> but that's not that's not the same as as having a uh, a brand new political structure being created and uh, that that just employs um, political hacks who are really good at managing lists uh, and uh, and taking and, and showing people information that they want to see. Look, I want to jump on that because one of the other things that happens with PACs is you have this this whole class of snake oil salesmen, political consultant mm-hmm. come around and fleece rich people yeah. to, to just waste money on a cause, right? Uh, when it when it's with the campaigns, at least you have a certain level of professionalization that occurs. Well, and PACs say things that parties can't say. PACs say things. So, that are you are saying not- Carter that they have a useful place then? Like, no, I'm saying that they no. say things that we shouldn't be saying in politics. Shouldn't be saying. Interesting. We, they, they say things that are that are that are outside of the norm, but they're not held to account the same way that a candidate is held to account. If a candidate says something that's horrible, or if I, who's a who's employed by a candidate, who says something horrible, there is a consequence to the candidate. There is a consequence to the campaign. However, if someone else says something horrible, there is no consequence. If the PACs is, so what we do is we farm out, we don't coordinate, of course, that'd be wrong. But you allow certain aspects of communication to go. Th- so you get groups that are a pack that is communicating almost entirely to uh, right wing religious group, right? Or to a pack that's communicating to different subsets of voters, left wing uh, unionists, right? That That's entirely what the pack is designed to do is to split the communication structure and fragment it more. Well, and that single issue component is is really important. I'm just going to jump in and give Zane an opportunity to go get his phone. Uh, the, the, I, I, I don't even know there's a landline here, Corey. <laughs> this, by the way, for Calgary municipal uh, election nerds, reminds me of a 2000. Carter was a 2007 Al Nur Kassam video where the phone was just ringing right behind him. Uh, by the way, you led that campaign, so I just wanted to just do the nerdiest of callbacks of all time. Corey, please go ahead. These packs are built around single issues, and and a candidate has to weigh how much they're going to to create a mix of of issue A, issue B, and issue C. As soon as you have a number of, of packs around that are just building off almost um, you know whatever they want, whenever they want, it can really kind of wrench elections in funny ways, and and in my opinion, not particularly helpful ways. So Carter, I want to ask you this because you'd mentioned this concept of packs. Let's dig into their financing a bit more. We got that 375k ceiling where if you spend below that, there is no audited disclosure on the back end. Talk to me about then this this concept. Why you you, you mentioned earlier this is effectively self interest by Jason Kenney. Why implement these rules on PACs? Why have the no spending limit prior to, to the election period? What sort of ramifications are you seeing? Or give me some of your, your, your prognostication. What are you expecting to see on the PAC front in Alberta in this upcoming municipal? Well, I mean, the PACs are going to try and set the question prior to the election period being set. So the question for an election campaign isn't, do I want to select this candidate or that candidate? The 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 question is actually, um, you know, are we for higher taxes or lower taxes, or are we for uh, replacing all the pavement on Deerfoot Trail, or are we for fixing uh, Crowchild Trail? Those are the types of questions that actually wind up getting defining an election, and they're usually they used to be defined during the course of an election. Someone would say something in a debate, and all of it, you know, so the the tunnel, the airport tunnel, becomes the question 
or one of the questions for the campaign in 2010. Should we build it? And she says yes. Um, Hagen says no. Right? That becomes a defining moment in the campaign. If a PAC can pre-spend money prior to the election period, they can set the question before anybody else has even started to spend money. So the PAC is now spending money on their special interest question, and that sets the question before the campaigns even start. And now everybody has to answer the question. So when we see uh, the anti-Green Line groups, the reason they were spending the money they were, they were spending was to try and influence the question. Should we build the Green Line all the way to 16th Avenue? Right. But they define the Green Line if they define the, their question poorly. But a, a well thought through PAC can actually define the question really well and change the outcome of an election. Corey, give me your prognostication. Look into that eight ball. What do you see in terms of PAC activity uh, perhaps happening in this upcoming municipal? Well, I think there'll be a fair bit. In a funny way, this might be worse than if we had never uh, had these fundraising rules at all. But the fact that we, we had tighter fundraising rules for a while, people got used to the notion of PACs, and now PACs are defined in our legislation and and seen as a very legitimate way to, to get involved in political discourse in a way that they weren't, frankly, 10 years ago in Alberta. Um, we may have in some ways kind of legalized and normalized PACs, which previously were considered quite unusual and, and actually a bit, a bit awkward and not appropriate. Um, you know, I, I want to jump back to what you said, though, about, uh, about the Conservatives and, and whether they were bringing this in mm. as some sort of rule-changing mechanism. And, you know, I, I guess I, in a sense, sure. Yeah, but I, I would also encourage people to put on the other hat and just look at it from the lens of their political opponents as well. And we have rules right now that hurt conservative candidates. They're designed to limit wealthy donors and designed to embarrass candidates who rely on them. If you're conservative, you may think that's putting your thumb on the scale. You may think that no rules is the more fair and natural state. So, um, you know, it's pretty easy to get high minded about these things in a hurry. But where you, where you sit is where you stand. And and. Like, I can understand why people don't like these rules, frankly. Um, I, I like these rules a great deal. I think disclosure is a very good thing for democracy. But uh, it, it's not surprising to me that people are not enthused about them if they think that they are hurting conservative options. Carter, one more comment on this, and I'm going to move on to, to my last question. Well, let's start up a pack. Let's start soliciting $10 donations. We never have to report who gave them to us, and away we go. Up to $350,000. We don't have to, you know... We don't have to even put together an audited report. Corey and I will 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 take the money out. You'll do the work, and away we go. Just uh, like the podcast. <laughs> Wait, actually, I mean, ask the you strategist about... pack. I I don't. If we don't start the strategist pack, I don't even know who we are. I don't even yeah, know that, who we are anymore. Why are you broadcasting it to the world? You you told everyone it's so easy to start a pack, and now we're going to have someone start the strategist pack after the show. Because, of course, we're going to be lazy and forget about it in the next 40 minutes. But yeah. one more question for you. before before Actually, you know what? I want to jump on this for a second. And, Corey, get your thoughts. What do you think of this idea and this concept that's being floated that, that PACs that don't have to have the reporting, so the subs 375K can have one issue and four separate PACs that just coordinate with each other on that issue? Uh, you would never find out who donated to them. They could run nasty you know, attack ads against a slate of candidates or candidates. Do you feel like that's something we could potentially see? I don't think you need four of them. I think you can do it with just one. I mean, keep in mind what you're trying to do. You're when you're when you're trying to control council, all you're doing is trying to to change the outcome of three or four council seats. It is not trying to uh, win 42 seats in an election. You just you know there are already incumbents on each side. 
Uh, some of those incumbents will step down. Some of them will lose. You just need to be able to influence a few uh, of the election of the councillors' election races. Three hundred seventy-five thousand dollars—a lot of money. You can probably move two or three elections on that if you're good. And the thing that saves me is knowing who these people are, and they're—they're they're just not. So I'm happy. I'm with Corey. Well, look, I'm, I'm okay with it. Look, we're co- completely going to see that. We—we we are absolutely going to see uh, large organizations come in and, and splash in a bunch of money and. Uh, you know, evidence suggests that most of them will be pretty inept at it based on our experience with PACs previously, but some of them won't be, and, and that should concern all of us here. But um, like I said, in some ways, you could you could have made a PAC 10 years ago. Nobody was stopping you except for that the norms of the game. And this right. really goes back to a common theme of the past couple of months of episodes here, which is the erosion of norms. So we have a situation with no norms and PACs allowed now. And that's worse, I think, than either the situation of norms pushing against PACs or the law pushing against PACs. So it will be very interesting to see what happens. But democracy ain't going to be like what democracy was yesterday once this is passed. That's for sure. Okay, so this last thing I want to pick up, Carter, is this concept of surpluses no longer existing. And, you know, this this concept of the surplus was that if you were a municipal candidate, you can effectively hoard anything you didn't spend. If you're running next round, you apply it to that. It would actually serve you for your next campaign. Now the government has said there's no surpluses, so there's an incentive to spend that money, you know, bringing together your guys' points of having more spending than perhaps we're ever going to see in these municipal races. But the goal was for the government to equalize this, to make it fairer for those that are new entrants into the race. Carter, in your mind, does this, does, does this legislation do that? No, because it's, it's taking money that would have been saved for the next election and allowing or forcing candidate, incumbents to spend it in this election. So instead of saving $40,000 for next time, you're going to keep all of that money and you're just going to pound down on the people who are challenging you in this particular election. So it still gets spent. It's still not fair. Um, And it does. And the incumbents, the ones who can raise the most, are now incented to spend the most. There's no thinking to themselves, well, I wonder if I'm going to have a difficult time raising money next time. And it puts them more into the path of the donor. The donor is king because if you have a war chest of $50,000 for the next campaign, you don't have to beg quite as hard. This time you have to beg hard and and the it, it just it doesn't make sense to me. Now, I have seen it on the other side where provincial politicians, for example, have amassed massive war chests, a couple hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. And the challenge, you know, I mean, that's a lot of money. And then they think they that money is theirs when really it's a constituency association's money. It can get a little bit fraught. So uh, I don't I don't like legislating that the money needs to be spent. My my preference would have been that any money not spent, uh, you know, when you retire needs to go to charity. That was the rule. I don't know, three elections ago, or at least that was the practice three elections ago. That's all gone by the wayside. Now everybody's just spending every nickel. Every red cent that comes in gets spent. Spend, Corey, spend, spend. Coy, any, any, any comments on, on that particular domain? Well, I'll, I'll have to ask you, is it a situation where the incumbent is not allowed to start fundraising for themselves until the election period? I don't believe so. And, and if not, then there's still a massive incumbent advantage. So it, it doesn't necessarily solve that problem. You can fundraise for three years as a sitting councillor. They can only they, fundraise for the last year. Oh, there you go. That's good. I think that was introduced before. But, you know, I mean, ultimately, you've still got an incumbent challenge. It, it is tough to to create a level playing field when you've got the power of incumbency. And uh, I, I wonder if this is not just 
um, you know, whistling in the dark. It's I, I don't know if it will work. Corey, Corey, I want to go back to you on this with the final question for this segment, which is you mentioned earlier that this is going to be strictly for the political class. Those have already got strong opinions on on this to begin with. Do you feel like there's any situation or any circumstance here where this uh, particular legislation becomes a problem for Kenny, uh, it, where it doesn't doesn't just kind of fly under the radar? It expands beyond the chattering and political class and becomes a problem. I would be surprised. It would probably take such an unlikely chain of events where you are drawing an action during a municipal campaign back to the decision to change the election laws in a way that drove everybody uh, to, uh, to rage. Um, it's, it's, it's hard to imagine that happening. And for that reason, I would say this. Smart political parties are, are, are going to remember this and they're going to be pissed off about it. And they're going to think about what it means to their own political chances and make sure that they're fighting the next election on the rules as are, not the rules they wish they were. But they will also not get drawn into it. This is not the kind of thing that's going to move votes. This is this is such a, a like a relatively wonkish issue. It's like a constitutional issue or something like that, where some people will care a lot, but those people are not really in play. And um, I, and I would really strongly encourage the NDP to stay focused on jobs, stay focused on healthcare, stay focused on education, and not get distracted by this because this bill does not have any resonance with anybody outside of a small, small group of people who have already made up their minds. Carter, mm-hmm. close us off here. Was this going to become an issue for Kenny? Any circumstances that you feel like uh, would would make this a, a bigger issue than it, than it may be in the next week or so? No, I don't think so. I mean, Kenny can seemingly avoid just about anything. So uh, I don't think it becomes an issue. It was never an issue in the last decade, but it kept being fiddled with uh, because the people who cared about it were in power. Now that's being fiddled back. I just lied to you. I said I was going to close it off there, but I am not because I've got you one final thing. You said that like four I know. times. How many four I know. last questions is this? <laughs> no, I, I, you, you're adding stuff to the domain. I actually wanted to introduce a listener question later on, but I want to do this one now, which is, you know, we had a listener, PJ, asking if you're one of the counselors right now, right, knowing to Corey's point, because this Corey's point just brought this up, the rules that are not the rules that you wish they were, at, you know, and how you wish they were. How would you be kind of strategizing right now as one of the, the counselors or, or a mayoral candidate? Would you be doing anything different or would you be following the rules? And the reason I asked this question is because, you know, I worked for, for Calgary's Mayor Nahid Nenshi, who, you know, often liked to, you know, uh, play the game of how the rules were or wishes how the rules were uh, with the donor disclosures ahead of time. If you're working for one of the counselors right now, Carter, are you just abiding by the rules or are you trying to seek the moral high ground uh, if you're strategizing? I, I just follow the rules. Uh, I probably would release my donors um, at least in blocks, right? So maybe once a week or something like that, um, just because I think that that uh, also sends a message and that message is what you want. So I'd be sending that message, but I wouldn't be doing it because um, the legislation was such. I'd be doing it to put pressure on the other guy you know, whoever you're opposed to. So I would do that because, you know, I'd, I'd then be able to say he's, you know, he's not releasing the information because he's getting all his money from uh, developers or she's getting all her money from developers or whatever. Uh, that way we could try and move past, you know, use it as an issue, but I would take the, all the cash. Like if there's a $5,000 donation limit, I'm taking checks right up to $5,000. Like I'm not this fake rules thing where we're going to have, you know, I'm going to play by only getting 2000 because I think that's what the rules should be. Those are the words of losers. Um, those aren't the winners who talk that way. Even on, the disclo- the even on the disclosure front, Carter, are you? would you be disclosing I'm your donors? The disclo- 
I'm just disclosing because I want to screw the other guy over. Yeah, right. right. Str- I just, I, but not because, not because um, I think it's the right thing to do. It's because I think I can get a benefit out of it. Corey, same question to you. What would you be doing right now, strategizing? Well, it depends on your brand, Zane, and it depends on who you are. If if you are working for the candidate that Carter's person is running against, and you don't want to release your donors because it doesn't help you. Don't release your donors. That was the old rules. Now you've got these current rules. And when they come saying you should release your donors, say something lame like, oh, well, you know, we're, we're still working through it all. And, you know, we're, we're following all of the rules. It just it, it, play to what's your advantage within the landscape that you've got. I mean, the rules will change. And I think ultimately uh, where people get themselves into a lot of trouble is when they try to follow the rules that were or the rules they wish were. Um, because because that's that's not going to help you. That's not going to help you get into a position where you can change those rules in the future. And it doesn't actually get you as much currency as um, as we like to imagine. Because frankly, that same group of people who've already made up our minds are the ones who care about whether you have a two thousand dollar limit or a five thousand dollar limit. There we go. And now my fifth final. I'm totally joking. No, that was worth <laughs> it. Thanks thanks PJ for that question. Okay, let's move it on to our next segment. It's always Ritz season. Guys, I want to talk about Trudeau's COVID bump and the question that we have regarding a spring election. So, Corey, I'm going to you first. What is the calculus right now for Justin Trudeau if he's considering uh, dropping the writ for a spring election? Well, I mean, it's summer now, Zane, so uh, it wouldn't be very good calculus. 21, Corey. I mean, 2021. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I... I, that's so far away. I mean, the nature of minority governments, just look at where we were a year ago. Look, nine months ago, what did the landscape look like relative to now? I, I think the notion that you would plan for an election nine months out is is a bit a bit unlikely, right? At least that you're going to know what the landscape is. You may say, okay, this is where we think we're going to move towards. We're going to get our nominations done for this date. We're going to be ready to roll. But it would be a bit foolish to just get yourself on such a track that you can't get off it if in nine months things look very very different yeah but Corey, you can always get on a track and get off the track you're the government so if you know that's only true in a majority situation that's not true in a minority situation but but i would i'd be setting the table for you know allowing peter mckay to continue to have his his saber rattling moment of trying to say, well, I wouldn't be voting to sub- sustain this government. We need to go to an election soon. I'd be taking that opportunity all day long. Um, you mean right now, Corey? Uh, right now, Carter? You would do that? You would start signaling that right now, or after the McKay? Oh, no, if, I, if, I if it just, would be McKay, I'd feed it. I'd, I'd try and find a way that I, you know we could always have a question being asked of Peter McKay. Do you favor an early election? Do you favor you know when you're when you're the leader? Do you favor some opportunity? I'd I'd be making sure. That, you know, I'm, I'm background journalists know that, oh, boy, you know, we're really afraid that the COVID bump's going to disappear really quick. We should, you know, we hope that Peter McKay doesn't push us for an election. I don't know. I'd figure something out. And then I would find a way that, that this becomes uh, an opportunity on whatever timeline I want. I've, I think the government should have always had the opportunity to call an election when they need it. Um, this minority government, uh, if Peter McKay continues his saber rattling that he wants an election early i would you know watch those polls if they don't take an immediate tip back down in in september october i think we could be seeing something as early as october 2020 and um you know march april 2021 if we don't see the dip why wouldn't we 
elections are about winning, not losing. So you always try and set the goals to win. Like it, that's the that's the point of it. You want to win. That's why our listeners come here for quotable quotes like that, Carter. Corey, would you also be seeding the ground on this? Do you feel like I mean, you look I I see the skepticism in your eyes. So so tell me what you're thinking. I guess what I'm thinking is, as a government, I'm always trying to make sure I'm in a position where I can win. I, I, you know, when you talk about planning for an election on a certain date, that tells me you're talking more machinery. You're talking about getting nominations in place. You're building up your war chest. You're preparing. And my caution is that the minute you make that your modus operandi, there's a bit of a self-fulfilling nature to that, right? All of a sudden, it's going to happen come hell or high water because your trains are on the tracks. It's it's occurring whether you want to or not. And so there is, there is a risk in getting yourself too mentally locked into a date that's nine months out. I, what you need to be doing right now is is riding the situation a little bit more loosely, in my opinion. That doesn't mean that you're not right. Like Carter could be right. There could be an election in the fall. If all of these pieces fall into place, if McKay becomes leader and says something stupid, if, if Jagmeet Singh becomes politically suicidal and decides he wants to go to the campaign with no money and no hope. But, um, you know, if, if you say it's happening in spring 2021, it becomes tough for it not to happen. And, and I'm not necessarily sure that is in the Liberals' best interest. Interesting. Carter, any response to that? I think Corey's comment around the particular date or seating a particular timeline may actually be strategically not beneficial. What do you think of that? I'd be working on three off ramps, right? And so you don't want to, I think that Corey's right as much as that pains me. Um, you don't want to set yourself to a single off ramp. Uh, you should have three off ramps. The three that I would devise right now would be um, a fall snap, a spring. Uh, let's go. And then something that was along the lines of well, we're going to do our full term and government as a majority. Harper did that. I, I can't remember if he went early in the third year or was it the fourth, but it was it was a long minority period and they're getting everything they want. They're not having any problems in this minority government. Do you really need 25 more backbenchers that you can't put in a cabinet? It's an interesting question. I mean, they're getting everything right now. Uh, the The calculus that many people are talking about is as soon as the <clears throat> the debt deficit numbers become much more public, we're kind of beyond the the concept of uh, of COVID and the pandemic that it might get harder. It may, you, you might have a strength in opposition with McKay uh, or, or perhaps O'Toole. So the, that's I mean, that's where the, the calculation comes from. But am I hearing you guys both say that uh, that if they feel like that the calculus is on their sides, that an early election should be something they pursue? Is that fair to say, Corey? Well, I would be very leery of the of the current standing in the polls. Um, mm. You you have you literally do not have a leader of the opposition. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess you have Andrew Scheer in the most literal sense, but yeah, you do they, not have a leader have of the a... opposition. <laughs> uh, you have a Conservative Party going through a bit of a awkward leadership race, is how I would put it. You have this. This art, I, I'm still believing largely artificial bump rally around the flag effect from COVID. I just, I don't know that I would be so confident that my standing is real and, and going to survive into, into the next couple of months that I would be making plans like that. I, I, and maybe that just goes to my natural, uh, you know, small C conservative nature on these things, uh, not wanting to expose such broadsides, but the, um, the the idea that you would would just move forward uh, under the assumption that you're actually at close to fifty percent in the polls to me seems 
it's really dodgy. And I certainly wouldn't build my strategy around that. Carter? Yeah, I mean, I think that the problem with these poll numbers are they're not real, right? I mean, sure, people feel that way right now. But you have a, a, a six or seven, eight week election period. How do they feel at the end? Uh, elections are where people start to pay attention. Right now, the, um, the give a fuck factor is really low. You know, they're worried about other things. They're not worried about changing the government. Uh, that's why I would devise, you know, a multiple off-ramp strategy. You you do not want to get caught going at the wrong time. And I have I, I suspect the numbers will hold over the summer because ain't no one going to change their mind over the summer. Um, and then when Peter McKay uh, gets to start to show off, oh, I'm sorry, Aaron O'Toole, I mean Peter McKay, <laughs> uh, when they get to show off in, in, in the fall, um, maybe something happens to the liberal numbers. I, I think that they the, the liberals right now have nowhere to go but down. But how far they drop, you know, two, four, six, twenty. I mean, I I don't know. I don't have an answer. Corey and look, Trudeau is benefiting largely from the fact that the United States looks like a total effing basket case, and, and you see so many uh, different charts of this is us on COVID versus this is the United States on COVID. We look at all of the chaos that's occurring in the United States on on a dozen different fronts, and um, and we're also fixated on the United States. Yeah, our government looks pretty good by by contrast. But when it comes to a rich drop, to Carter's point, we we stop looking abroad, right? We start comparing options internally, and that can have a different effect on polls. But Carter? can you imagine a scenario where you're running a, a a fall election and you time it to be like the week before the uh, the, 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 the 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 election in the U.S.? I mean, you're That's running. Like you're not even running against Peter McKay at that point. You're just running against Donald Trump for the whole election. And I love that running against Donald Trump. Oh, yeah. Give me that every day. And then Peter McKay has to try and find a way to be a conservative who runs also against Donald Trump. It's impossible for him. Oh, it's I beautiful. love that. I love that idea, Carter. Uh, that's, that's probably one of the smartest things you've said on the show. Look at that. No, I was on fire last week. Oh, that's true. That's true. It was Corey yeah, that yeah, had yeah. to revise revise some of his strategic thinking. But <laughs> I, I want to go into this because you guys are actually opening up a very uh, interesting line of conversation, which is, okay, so you've got these, these poll numbers that are artificially uh, inflated. You've got this comparator down in the U.S., Corey. You're talking about this contrast. Give me some other considerations. What else are you kind of considering right now in the, in the Trudeau PMO or even in the Liberal Party as you kind of inject other elements into your, your calculation as to whether you go or not? Or uh, what, what, what other things are you looking at? Corey, can I go to you on this? Sure. Well, you, there, are, there are some of the fundamental, do I have the candidates? Do I have the dollars? Am I able to actually run an election campaign on this time frame? Uh, you do need a, a platform of some sort, although obviously you can get away with a pretty threadbare one, especially if you're doing a bit of a don't change horses in midstream uh, campaign, as looks like would probably be the choice, especially if you're going in the fall and, and comparing and contrasting to the, the United States. Um, you you want to be thinking about those same things for your opponents. How is, uh, how is the NDP, how's the CPC doing on their fundraising and their candidate side? Uh, you want to make sure that you have all of your oppo research ready to go and um and then ultimately yeah you want to make sure that it's not just national polls but on a regional breakdown you know riding by riding almost you look like you can gain and, and that there's an advantage for you to get um but but beyond that i mean literally anything that's in the field of politics is something that should be under consideration right is there going to be an election in this province is it likely to cause this kind of 
backlash. What is going on in Quebec uh, right now with separatism always a consideration? And, um, you know, you're looking at a pretty big board and that board looks, you know, has different pockets based on regionality. Things even like the, um, the, uh, the referendum, the referendums that are being considered in Alberta here, that that's going to play into your election timing and you're thinking about it. Carter, any other calculus you want to throw on the table? I think that there's two. I mean, I agree with all of the things that Corey said, but I think there's two things that are completely outside of your control that will dictate the outcome of this election. If they're, you know, the hypothetical election that, that Corey and I are now calling. Um, the first is the economy. Uh, you know, we are still sitting in a situation with millions of people unemployed or underemployed. Uh, that is a real problem. It has not yet surfaced as a problem. We haven't decided who to blame because we continue to blame COVID. But at some point, we're going to stop blaming COVID and we're going to start blaming governments. Um, who gets blamed for that will dictate uh, a, large a large swath of, of any election discussion. Uh, and and this, the, so the, the economy is the first. And the second, of course, is COVID itself. Um, you know, we've, we've, most of our cases came from the states in our first run, you know, and, and we're all feeling pretty, pretty smug and pretty happy with ourselves because we're doing such a better job than the United States. That's great. The United States is on fire. The problem is the United States is literally attached to us. They, they come, you know, we, we're doing the non-essential travel thing. Uh, I'm worried about essential travel at this stage. I am extremely concerned that our, our bounce is, is inevitable because they can't control. So um, that, those two things will impact any election discussion. And probably smart money, because the liberals, especially Justin Trudeau liberals, have, have, tr have tended towards being passive and uh, not too bold, I would expect that they'll just, they'll try and ride as long as they can. Interesting. Corey? Yeah, that's really smart. Unemployment is a real problem. It's at about 14%. Underemployment beyond that it is a real challenge uh, in this COVID environment. And um, the economy is such a wild card. And even in October, I'm not so sure we're going to be so charitable towards governments for their responses to this. We look at the United States, we feel okay. You look across the pond to Europe, they do not have these unemployment problems that we have right now in Canada because they have taken different approaches to tackling COVID uh, from a, like a support point of view. They've largely been focused on the employers instead of giving benefits like CERB. And uh, as a result, I, I can't even remember what Germany's at, but it's single digits. You know, it's it's nothing like we're looking at here. And maybe once we, we get out of the shock of the moment, we're not going to be feeling so great about our government's response to COVID-19. Uh, Corey, I think Carter's giving me his answer, saying that the libs will probably hold on as long as they can. What do you what do you what do you think they're going to do? Do you think that they if they see the opportunity, they'll go for it? Or do you feel like this is them trying to stretch this out as, as long as they they can to before they have to go back to the polls? Oh, I think if they see the opportunity, they'll go for it. I mean, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. And if if McKay and Singh both for whatever reason, decide they're going to vote against something. I think that uh, Trudeau is going to say, fucking game on, let's go, you idiots. I don't know why you would possibly uh, <laughs> push yourself into this situation. The question for me is if, if those two parties have a sense of self-preservation and Trudeau's got to essentially pull a Harper and go to the GG and say, no, I want to go now. Um, 
Is, is he going to do that? If, if the opposition gives him the opportunity to call an election, yeah, call an election, right? Put it on their feet and do it. His biggest risk is that it looks opportunistic. And if that risk gets managed, then he's going to try to finish it in four weeks and come out of it with a majority government. Carter, anything to finish us off? Yeah, I mean, I think that the problem, the opportunity comes from Peter McKay. Uh, Peter McKay is the one who's who's done the most chat about uh, election. Um, everybody else will just stay in their bunker. They will not put their head out and, and try and uh, uh, take this on. So uh, if Peter McKay is smart, he's uttered his last words that include election. Uh, you know, it's just, but that's a pretty big if. All right, let's move it on to our last segment or second last segment. I mean, who cares about ordering this episode, yeah, guys? I'm just going over, with it. You're just... Our ne- it doesn't matter. Our next segment, the strategy scale. So on the heels of what we did last week, I'm, don't worry, guys. I'm not going to make you create strategies out of the blue. But I want to spend a bit more time on some of the questions that have that have generally gone into our over, under, and our lightning round. So I'm going to give you four situations. I want you to rank their strategies out of one, and, one to ten and then give me a bit more depth as to why. Because sometimes we don't get that opportunity uh, as we, uh, as we uh, put these in, in the lightning round uh, at the end. And so, Corey, I'll start with you. And the first thing that we have to discuss is Jason Kenney not firing his speechwriter after uh, an old speech of his comes out uh, where he said that uh, was it residential schools were a false genocide. There was other items uh, that came out about his past and his beliefs of LGBTQ plus people. Uh, Jason Kenny doubled down. Give me a score on a strategy. I will not hold you to the fact that this is your view, but give me a score on a strategy and why you think it's as such. This is a tough one um, for a number of reasons. Um, but let's call it a five right now. Here's, here's my thing. The, there is no nuance in the world anymore. Every time a staffer Fs up, people call for their, for their termination. And, um, and I think that the public has become so used to that that I'm not necessarily sure that this isn't something that, that won't just go away in two weeks, right? And in that sense... Um, why rock the boat? You, you've got to set up. You, you're, you're okay. You're happy with your speechwriter. You, you don't want to be making a change, and you don't want, frankly, the opposition to draw blood. On the other hand, you've got to be able to tell even when you're there when it's actually not a sports team thing, right? When it's not just the opposition trying to draw blood, but when you are actually putting yourself at pretty serious risk by keeping this person on the payroll, right? What groups are you potentially antagonizing? Is this something that is going to long-term cause you damage with uh, the indigenous population of Alberta? I mean, we've already seen Treaty 8. Um, It is a big priority for Premier Kenny to get the Alberta Indigenous Opportunities Corporation rocking and rolling and, 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 uh, and creating economic opportunity with our First Nations. And are you going to be able to do that with Paul Bunner as your speechwriter? That's that's the question you have to ask yourself. And I I don't know the answer to that. And, and you know, this is – topics like these are always a bit weird for me, Zane, because I, the, I these are not abstract people. These are people I worked with a few months ago, right? But but that that is, I'm sure, what uh, what needs to be wrestled with. Like, okay – is this just the back and forth of politics? Is this going to go away? Or is there something more fundamental here that I need to address as premier? And right now, uh, Jason Kenney seems to have taken the position that this is something uh, that's just the back and forth of politics. 
I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I'm not convinced of that. Uh, the, you know, every day there's a bit more writing that comes to surface. But, uh, but I'm not necessarily saying that, uh, that we won't all forget about this in two weeks either. I mean, we certainly look at the last two weeks, what we were talking about, what we're talking about now. Carter, what do you think on a scale of one to 10? What would you, what would you rank the current Kenny play or the lack of action? Uh, this is two sides of the coin. Corey's right. Corey's right again. Like the two sides of the coin problem. I just think that this is coming at such a bad time. You know, this, the, the timing on this, this has been dredged up because of the time that we are in. We are in the time when, uh, we must show support for, uh, Black Lives Matter. We must show support for our indigenous population. That's a good thing. So when you have these types of views, um, I think that, you know, I would have tossed him overboard. Um, and in part, I would have tossed him overboard because the the response from the issues managers that work for Premier Kenny, uh, led, of course, by my good friend Matt Wolf, uh, <laughs> is tragically bad they pulled up a quote from uh oh come on ndp leader tommy douglas tommy Tommy douglas Douglas. in the 1960s uh, about homosexuality saying people can change tommy douglas is dead he didn't change fuck all um you know like i think we have our episode title anyways this is this is this is not the same thing this is a guy who a few years ago uh talked about residential schools and ignored the impact that they're having uh, to this day on our on the indigenous population of Canada. Um, this is not a good play. And it's a speechwriter. There are more speechwriters, right? There are lots of speechwriters. Give the guy a severance, send him on his way. Off we go. Corey, you want to you want to Yeah, that, the Tommy Douglas thing was so so weak. So bad. So weak. So I bad. Mean, do, do we want to start dredging out what was being said at, at conservative conventions on the issue of homosexuality in the in 1960s? the two thousands in the two thousands? <laughs> like I just, I mean, it is such a such a phony argument, uh, and certainly that view of homosexuality that Tommy Douglas espoused would have gotten you booed off the floor of an NDP convention in the eighties. Yeah, right? and, and like, t- this is this is not. This is not a relevant argument, and, and it also uh, kind of shows that the the conservatives are falling into that trap we always caution them not to, which is like this this caricature of your opponents. Like, do they really think that that Tommy Douglas shrines exist in NDP households all throughout Alberta? Like, that's just that's just not the reality of the situation here. And um, I, I I I don't I don't know if that would be the argument that I would have gone with. It is so. Tell you what. Let's so do, not relevant to the matter at hand. Let's do a two for one. Let's get rid of Matt Wolf and the speechwriter. Boom. Two for one. Problem solves itself. You're better off without these people. You're better off without them. Well, listen, I will say this. It is pretty easy to have bloodlust for these positions when they are just, they seem like chess pieces when you're looking at it from the outside. But these are people you know. These are people you go to work with. They are your friends. And it is it is not easy, nor should it be easy for you to just to fire these people, Right. I, I really have a hard time with this notion no. that we are just going to remove. Then let's let us You've return to the, let us return to the good old days when they would have fallen on their sword, right? When 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 a political staffer who's who's drawing this kind of attention says, you know what, Premier, I am a distraction to you. I should right. not be. The government of the day is more important, and what your agenda is is more important than whether or not I'm writing speeches for you. 
Why, so this why is, is that this not happening? This is my yeah. point. Yeah. This is my point. This doesn't happen anymore because uh, people on all political sides took advantage of that rather noble instinct and started calling for the resignation of every fucking person every time there was any kind of minor situation that came up. I'm not saying this is a minor situation. I'm saying that when you are calling for everybody's resignation, the instinct to resign to not be a distraction becomes a pretty stupid instinct to have because you're going to have a pretty threadbare premier's office if you do that. So we have lived now in a world where every time somebody's name comes up in the press, you ask for them to be fired for far too long. Uh, and the conservatives certainly did this to the NDP. So this is not unique of the NDP asking conservatives. And I haven't actually seen the NDP ask for a ton of resignations there. I'm sure somebody will correct me on that side. But, but the problem is we do it too much. Mm-hmm. We do it so much that when you have one of these situations that actually is a stop and swallow and think about it, it's tough to actually see it for that because you have this morass of politics and this morass of histrionics that's going on all of the time. And that's that's fundamentally the challenge that both sides, both the NDP and the conservatives have right now. I, you know, I, I don't actually know where politics ends and where principle begins for either side, to be frank. I'm going to move it on to our next one. Okay, same strategy scale on a scale of 1 to 10. Carter, I'm going to you first. Trudeau refusing to release Meng Wanzhou amid the tensions with China. Uh, so, so the Trudeau government refusing to, to release uh, the Huawei executive who is extradited in Vancouver amid the increasing tensions with China. What do you make of this, this strategy right now by Trudeau? Absolute A+. plus. We don't give in to terrorists. We don't give in to hostage takers. Um, just because the terrorist and the hostage taker happens to be the Chinese government in this particular case, uh, this isn't a spy swap. Uh, this isn't a Tom Clancy novel. This is a person who we are extraditing to the United States that we've we've arrested on their at their behest. This is the way this, the 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 rule of law works. Uh, and just because another country has decided that they want uh, to flex their their muscles through uh, their totalitarian authoritarian instincts doesn't mean we play their game. And uh, I I like what Trudeau is doing here. I'd have been stronger. Corey, what do you think? I, I mean, I agree. The minute you start bending on those things, and let's be frank, we bend on them every now and then, but it, it causes problems when you do. It's our previous bending on such matters, and it's, for example, Trump talking about maybe there's some room to negotiate that have gotten us to this situation to begin with. The only reason these actions are being taken by China is because they believe we will set aside our rule of law, potentially, and, and make a swap. In the longer term, for the long-term benefit of both our country and other countries within the Western world, we need to hold firm on this issue. All righty, Corey, I want to go on the next one. Whack again to Trudeau. In this case, strategy of 1 to 10, Justin Trudeau is now defending his government's decision to enlist a Toronto-based charity, WE, uh, which has close ties to his family, uh, saying that they're the only organization capable of executing the government's nationwide uh, student volunteer program. What do you think of this? So effectively doubling down, saying, nope, we've made this decision. It's, it's, it's what we want to do. Give me, your, give me your strategy scale score on that. Ah, you know, I, I wouldn't have done it in the first place. I think the notion of bringing we into it, given those ties, I, I've got to give a pretty low score to, like a one. But once you're in that situation, um, you are sort of just confirming there is something wrong with it if you back out at this point. So I, I, you know what, this is that classic double down. You've just got to ride this one out and say this was the right decision to make. Should have known that the optics are pretty, pretty dodgy. Shouldn't have done it in the first place. Now he has. He can't back out. Carter? 
I object to the uh, redefining of what a conflict of interest is. Um, mm. You know, a conflict of interest where, with a charity where you give your time and your money and your support to, like, what are you getting back? What is it you get back from the charity? It's, you know, it's it's not a conflict of interest in, in the classic sense. Um, so I, I, I objected to that. What I thought was wrong was to simply give this to this particular group and say, this is the group that's going to manage it. Um, the, so the conflict of interest thing is just baked. Like it doesn't make any sense to me, but the sole, you know, the sole sourcing of the opportunity doesn't also make particularly great sense. So I'm, I'm, I'm not a big fan of this, of the, the choice, but I think that saying that it's because they've got close contacts with the charity is fucking ridiculous. Once again, Carter does not give me a number, but what's what's a surprise there? That's fine. <laughs> was there fine. a number question? Was there a question? They're all number? they're all numbered questions, Carter. Oh, God damn I missed it! That. Sorry. Oh, okay, I'm sure you did. Okay, last one, and I'm Carter. I'm going to you. Uh, this is not a political party, but frankly, it's an institution very much interconnected to politics. It's Facebook, and I want you to talk about Facebook's lack of response as advertisers have been starting to boycott them over the course of the last week or so uh, in at an intense uh, uh, volume uh, with some of their biggest advertisers now joining ship. What do you make of Facebook strategy on a scale of one to 10 by not saying anything? Hopefully I'm assuming writing it out. Uh, give me your take. Well, I mean, they're trying to write it out. I mean, double down is, is our, our go-to strategy. Um, we've, we've said it dozens of times on this podcast, always double down. I think we in fact did an episode on why you should always double down. Um, but they lost a lot of market capitalization. They're going to lose more. There's a story in the Washington Post today that, that basically says that Facebook yep. has decided uh, to draw their policy lines around whatever Trump is doing in the moment. Um, that's going to hurt. It's going to hurt more. And the sleeping giants type of activity that was taken against advertisers on uh, uh, blue, uh, uh the crazy right wing podcast, uh, Steve Bannon's websites. Um, Breitbart. That's yeah. that's Breitbart. now going to take place, and Facebook is the target. Their market cap is going to continue to drop, and they they need they need to be held accountable. Facebook, Twitter, these are now publishing entities. They are no longer just web technology hosting organizations, and they need to be held to the publishing standards. Uh, and that should be, I mean, I would, I want someone desperately to run on that platform. And if it's uh, sleepy Joe, then that would even be better. <laughs> we'll get to sleepy Joe in a second. Corey, give me your one to 10 scale on, on Facebook's lack of action, uh, as this advertiser boycott continues. Do you know, it's interesting the way their system works, the more people that boycott Facebook, the more appealing it becomes to advertise on Facebook because there's this live auction where all of a sudden you can get these placements cheaper which in theory will make the people who are less inclined to boycott invest more and perhaps uh, come in behind and fill it. Um, you know, so there's a bit of a market mechanism that will help them level out. I don't know that it's ever been tested like this, but I can understand why they might want to just say, let's, let's see where this goes. Let's see if this boycott actually goes anywhere. Because all of a sudden, if your cost per click is going from $1.31 to $0.13, cents, that's pretty appealing. And there's quite a few advertisers who might be interested in taking advantage of that. So... So I get it. I get why they might be silent for a bit. I think that as it stands right now, I will give it an eight. Um, if we hear that it was a total flop and they've lost an awful lot of money because of it, um, I would obviously change that. But th there's this interesting, you know, counterweight 
to this, right? Uh, the more people who boycott a platform like Facebook or Google or whatnot, uh, the more people who will want to jump on the platform who might not otherwise want to. Alrighty, let's move it on to our final segment, our over-under in our lightning round. Guys, are you ready? Totally. That wasn't the lightning round? That was not. No, I, I mean, I gave a giant... <laughs> is no one listening to me? Jesus Christ. Not really, Christ. no. We no. get the clearly, questions clearly. sometimes. Okay, yeah. here we go. We're going to go much quicker. We're going to go less in detail. I wanted to explore those topics a bit more. Uh, Corey, over to you for the first one. On a scale of 1 to 10, Trump's team this week says that the election is Biden's to lose. All the pressure is on him. This game of expectation setting, what do you give that? What do you give that lack of strategy? I don't even know what to call that. What do you give that strategy a score of? Um, I, I, I like it a lot from the point of view of somebody who wants the United States to continue to be a democracy because it's going to make it that much harder for Trump to claim the election was rigged when he ultimately does lose it. So, so the system wins in this case, right? We can all breathe a little bit easier that Trump is acknowledging that he is not currently winning the election. Uh, as far as strategy goes, I think it's a bad one for Trump because Trump has always tried to be the guy who's like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm a winner. I win. And you can't be the winner who's down by 15 points, 10, 15 points. So, Carter, what do you make of this telegraphing? Yeah, well, I mean, their st- staff's out on an island again, and he's just going to ignore them anyways. So the guy with the big megaphone is going to tell everybody the election's fixed, the polls are fixed, I'm already winning, don't even worry about it. And then... Uh, when they lose, everybody's going to be shocked and uh, heavily armed. <laughs> Corey, it's, uh, it, is, it is report card season because last week on the show, we had talked about uh, Aaron O'Toole saying that if something stupid was the reason of this data leak for Aaron O'Toole, he would look very silly. Uh, Corey, with the developments that had happened this week, uh, both explain a little bit of the developments and then give him a letter grade as, as, to, as to what you would give Aaron O'Toole, uh, now knowing a bit more. Uh, well, there's the, <laughs> the first back and forth was Peter McKay saying, you emailed your passwords to 300 people. That was pretty funny. Uh, and then there was somebody who came out and said, no, no, it wasn't Jamie Lawl. I went to him and he said he didn't want it. So, I mean, this was when we were talking about it and you said to me, Zane, something along the lines of like, yeah, but this won't play out there. And I said, well, maybe it will. Maybe we'll find out it's really dumb really quickly. And it's going to be really embarrassing for Aaron O'Toole. I think... I, I, I'm amazed by how quickly that came to be. I, I yeah. think this is not looking good on Aaron O'Toole. No matter what happened, it's pretty clear that this is just Aaron O'Toole's campaign not knowing its head from its ass. Yeah, you're giving that an F, Corey, on that letter grade, I assume? I give it a head from ass minus. <laughs> Carter, what a, what's the uh, report card on this particular, can I even call it scandal, uh, that Aaron O'Toole tried to trudge up? I want to be the guy who's reaching out to Jamie Lal right now and offering some sort of financial settlement. That's going to be my favorite part. <laughs> hey, Jamie, how you doing, man? Yeah, it's Steve. I'm calling from the campaign of Aaron O'Toole. Uh, how much you want? That's where we are. That's where we are right now. Oh, my goodness. Give me on that same issue. What do you give um, uh, Peter McKay and how he dealt with it? Corey, like was 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 him just saying that line and then walking away, like not having any doubt whatsoever about his campaign uh, and and their and their uh, illegal activity. Do you feel like that was the right approach? I was the most impressed I've been with the McKay. Yeah, that was good. (laughs) That's what I was going to say. No, I'm serious. He just he just dropped the hammer. He's like, you're a fucking idiot absolutely didn't happen your way and then we've spent the last week talking about what a clown car Aaron O'Toole's campaign has been this this has been a best case scenario for Peter McKay yeah no kidding Carter do you believe the same oh yeah I mean 
Peter actually looked like a leader there for a second. He just trotted it, <laughs> boom, boom, boom. It was a beautiful situation for him. He looked great. Well done, Aaron. Alrighty. And <laughs> on our final question, Carter, I'm starting to you over, under, on six. Over, under, on six. Uh, the government of Alberta releasing a, a cinematically beautiful video promoting the fact that the NHL should be hosting their collective hub of games and activities in Edmonton. Uh, of course, none of the footage from Edmonton. In fact, all of the footage from a Glacier Hotel promo video, uh, which is now uh, which is now circulating online. Carter, what do you want to give this one on on, on over under of six? I'm gonna. I think it's always going to be under. I think it's going to be enough, <laughs> and I think I think it's going to be enough. Um, this is what <laughs> happens when you shut down. Uh, tourism Alberta like literally we have an archive of this footage for every region of Canada of Alberta that yes. can be accessed at a, at a finger snap and you can put together these types of videos in no time at all and instead of doing that they plagiarized it and it wasn't even about the t- the area that they were and then their their unbelievable defense of the video they defended it as though their, la- their last life depended upon it, and it was bullshit. And again, the defense led by my good friend, Matt Wolf, who continues to make a shit ton of money being an issue manager for this. Pr- How does he look? Like, is it, is it Kenny looks good in comparison? Is that what it is? Is that what it is? Does Matt have some sort of control over him? I don't know. I want to know. That was so bad. <laughs> Corey, before I ask you for your over-under, tell me how you think this video got made. And what I mean by that is you were the former head of, I forget the most recent title, Public Affairs Bureau. Public Affairs Bureau. No one can remember the other. Yeah, well, the communications and engagement, whatever it was. Anyways, how did this get made? Like from your, your, you know, uh, perhaps not inside knowledge, but process knowledge. How how did something like this find the Premier's Twitter account and then get fanned out? Because it doesn't seem like it went through that uh, particular channel that you once controlled. It's, it seems very unlikely it came from the Communications and Public Engagement Office. The, uh, the number of checks that would have had to go through both on a copyright point and, uh, and also, I'll be blunt, like, it, it's, it's run, you know, it's Edmontonians. Edmontonians would have been far more sensitive to that. They've lived in Edmonton their entire life. The, uh, the director of, of marketing services there is an Edmontonian. The executive director of outreach is an Edmontonian. The deputy uh, is an Edmontonian. It's the, everyone's an Edmontonian, and you're not going to make that mistake. So I have to believe that came through a different channel, whether it was a booster of the premiers or one of the premier staff who perhaps is not as sensitive to those things has not been in Edmonton long enough to realize Edmontonians are going to lose their goddamn minds if you don't have a picture of Edmonton in it. Now, I got to tell you, it's also just baffling from a pure craft point of view. None of these things are anywhere near Edmonton. That is clear. But the extent of how far away they are, I think, is almost is almost a marvel. So the Washington Monument, the Washington Monument is hundreds of kilometers closer to New York City than that particular lodge is to Edmonton, Alberta. I mean, it would be like saying, visit New York, see the Lincoln Memorial. Visit... (laughs) Oh, that's so good. You're going to do that video tonight, right? Are we going to make that video? Yeah, yeah. we'll make that video. (laughs) It's really, it's quite a miss. It's a huge miss. And also it, you know what that you have to be careful about is that it really does look like 
you don't think there's anything redeeming about Edmonton proper when you put a video like that together. You're basically selling Edmonton by things that are hundreds and hundreds of kilometers away. And that's that's not a good look. We are going to leave it there. That's a wrap on episode 808 of The Strategist. My name is Zane Belgi. With me, as always, Corey Hogan, Stephen Carter, and we'll see you next time. 